Again, this week, the uh, order of our readings is reversed, so we'll hear our New Testament reading from Romans first. We begin in the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, beginning verse 25 and continuing through verse 32 as he is addressing the issue of the people of God, the Hebrews, and, and how now, in light of the coming of Christ, the covenant that God made with his people is being reviewed and updated. So I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. And so our new, our Old Testament reading, our second reading of the morning, is from the book of Genesis in the 45th chapter, beginning of verse 1 and continuing through verse 8. It's a little bit longer than what you have printed in the inserts. But I invite you once again to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians outside heard it. And the household of Pharaoh outside heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is our father still alive? But his brothers could not answer. So dismayed were they at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Joseph, he was the youngest of Jacob's 12 sons. And he became a bit of a pain in the neck for his brothers. They perceived him as haughty with delusions of grandeur. They wished he would just be quiet and stay in his lane. But as his father took a particular shine to his youngest boy, Joseph seemed emboldened to play up his status as favored. Finally, his brothers conspired to put him out of their misery. While far beyond the sight of Jacob, his 11 other boys seized Joseph and sold him off as a slave to an Egypt-bound caravan. After this dastardly transaction was complete, they returned to their father with evidence to support their claims that he had been killed by a wild animal. Thus, they concealed their involvement in what would become a very high-profile case of human trafficking. Thousands of years later, the scourge of this same sin has yet to be purged from the face of the earth. A recent motion picture from the same studio that distributed the video series on the life of Jesus that we have been watching in our Sunday school class, The Chosen, is called The Sound of Freedom. And it takes a contemporary look at this very same troublesome issue. Human trafficking is but one of a wide array of sins that lead to suffering. And suffering is what we are going to be considering this morning, in part, because I believe it is the elephant in the room. I say that because the world, just in case you hadn't noticed, the world is full of suffering. And the church, as well, is full of suffering, even this church has had its share. So while perhaps not a popular topic, it is, I believe, an important one, and one which the people of God have a long-established tradition of confronting head-on. And when we're done here this morning, we can restore our souls beside the still waters of the pool down Mary's Lot Lane. In this morning's reading, we catch up with Joseph decades now after this conspiratorial plot of his brothers had been enacted. All of his brothers, except Benjamin, now the youngest, uh, so next to Joseph, he's the youngest, they had all been sent down from Canaan by their father, Jacob, on a quest to find wheat. They needed food. They were starving in Canaan. It seems some ancient climate change had resulted in a, a lengthy period of drought, greatly reducing the grain supply throughout the region. 
But rumor had it that to the south, the Egyptians had been wise enough to prepare for just such a contingency, and an official in their government had instituted a policy of stockpiling grain in each of the seven years that had preceded the drought so things wouldn't be so bad when there were no crops. It was conceivable then that Jacob and his family might be able to import the wheat that they needed from their neighbors down in Goshen. So the 11, the 10, minus Benjamin, dutifully went as their father ordered to see the agent of the Pharaoh in order to obtain the requisite permission to purchase what they needed. And the agent of the Pharaoh turned out to be none other than their youngest brother, Joseph, who was now all grown up and, for all intents and purposes, running the entire kingdom of Egypt on behalf of the Pharaoh. Though they didn't recognize him, Joseph recognized them when they came in, and it set the stage for a convoluted and drawn-out family reunion. And as he's revealing his identity to them, Joseph's brothers are, understandably, in distress and fear for the retribution that he may be about to exact upon them for their vicious treatment of him all those years ago. But to their amazement and much to their relief, Joseph is not vindictive. Rather, he tells them that it was not their actions that sent him from their homeland to this new land, but it was God who had purposed it. The Most High had redeemed Joseph's suffering, and he had used it for good. Good to benefit Joseph, yes, but also to benefit the people of Egypt and his own family of origin, all at the same time. This sordid chapter in the history of the Israelites is about to have a Disney-esque ending. So happily ever after does everyone live that they even made a Broadway musical about the whole affair starring Donnie Osmond. All well and good. But the stark reality is all our entries into suffering don't turn into Broadway musicals. Not to say that there's more suffering in the world today than there was in the age of Joseph. Uh, there is an argument to be made, in fact, that due to advances made in agriculture and transportation, in medicine and in other fields, the percentage of the world's population that are subject to famine and resulting malnutrition has markedly decreased, and along with it, the corresponding degree of human suffering. But natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, volcanic eruptions, and the like continue to occur with regularity, and each one brings with it a new wave of suffering. Man-made disasters are also an all-too-familiar occurrence, from wars 
to crime, to wildfires begun by human negligence. Then there's the suffering from diseases, which even the very best in modern medicine has yet to curb. The cancers, the dementia, the Parkinson's, mental illness, infectious diseases and pandemics, substance abuse and addiction, and all the other sorts of suffering precipitated by financial crises, discrimination, job loss, and to circle back around to Joseph and his brother's relationship struggles. These are all very real, and unfortunately, they remain part of our world today. So as Christians, what do we make of all this? And how do we respond? Uh, Y'all have known me as pastor long enough now not to expect me to be very prescriptive in this pulpit. I don't offer many concrete solutions or remedies. Though for those of you who have reached out to me personally and with specific concerns, I have endeavored to provide some spiritual direction. So today isn't going to be any different. I'm not going to tell you what to believe or what to do, but rather, as usual, I'm going to try to give you some guidance based in God's Word that will equip each of you to take your own informed Christian approach to action or reaction. So it is to God's Word that we again return as we consider the problem of human suffering, which is quite often closely tied to human sin. The first of God's human creations, Adam and Eve, went from a life of bliss to one of toil and hardship and, one might say, suffering as a result of their disobedience to God. He is the one who formed them and made us too and who, as our Father, wants only the best for His children. He's tried His very best to protect us, most often from ourselves, by giving us instructions on how to conduct ourselves in this life. When we choose to ignore or flaunt those instructions, we're opening ourselves up to suffering the consequences, which often includes suffering. Straying from the precepts of God then invites consequences. Among his words to his people, some of the most basic were the ones he inscribed into the tablets he gave to Moses. Even from the moment they were first brought down the mountain and into the camp of the Israelites, they caused people to stumble. For men would have preferred to live according to their own wants and desires, and their intransigence led them into a series of unfortunate events that involved a series of sufferings. On a, a macro scale, this disobedience, the sinfulness of the Israelites is what would lead them to the place we find them as Paul describes them in his letter to the Romans. You might say that this is a, a condition of national suffering one that will be remedied, Paul is quick to point out, in due season and by God, who is just but also merciful, righteous yet redeeming. Okay, 
So what about the suffering that we can't seem to trace back to any sort of disobedience on our own part? Take, for example, that of Job. Here was a fellow who was described as more upright than well, just about anybody else in his day. The very model of a modern major God-fearer. For all of his goodness, his name has become synonymous with suffering. In the book that bears his name, we are privy to the knowledge that there was a point and a purpose to his pain and suffering, even if we don't like that purpose. But even after his ordeals had ended and he was restored, Job himself was not privy to that information. And that, that may be the case with much of our own suffering. Seek and search all we like. We aren't privy to the why behind it. And we may never receive a satisfying explanation, at least this side of glory. But what we can learn from Job's experience is that even in our confusion and our lack of understanding, God is anything but uncertain. What Job knew and what we are invited to remember is that even when, as Forrest Gump said, it happens, God knows. He knows exactly what we're going through and he knows exactly where it will lead even when it might not seem like it. And he's right here with us and firmly in control. Jesus, God's only son, was well acquainted with trials and in his own hour of deepest suffering as he hung dying on that cross he cried aloud to the Father with the first words of the 22nd Psalm, whose next lines were our responsive call to worship this morning. And he acknowledged in that moment that he felt alone, even as he acknowledged in that moment that he knew he wasn't. That may be the deepest suffering the world can know. A feeling of abandonment by God. In fact, as heaven is described as being eternally in the presence of God, hell is often described as a state of being isolated from the presence of God, abandoned, forsaken. But just because we can't always sense the imminence of God in the trials of this life doesn't mean that he isn't present in our time of suffering. And that, that, I believe, is what differentiates the sufferings of a Christian. The hope, the trust, the assurance, the absolute bedrock belief that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. My only comfort in life and in death, the Heidelberg Catechism begins, is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
even when the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune strike and we can't make any sense of it whatsoever, when sorrow and suffering are our lot for a season, we are not alone. Others have been there and others are there for us. And most importantly, our God is there, is here for us so we too may sing, it is well with my soul. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.